Okay, why don't we get started? Uh, we're going to continue in our study of the book of 2 Corinthians, and we will continue where we left off last time in, in chapter 5, verse 11. So I will read uh, verses 11 through 17, and we'll consider those verses or as far as we get. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, starting in verse 11. Uh, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. And what I hope it is known also to your conscience. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might not might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let's pray and then we'll consider this. Father, we, we come to you again today to consider your word, and we pray that as we do, that it will, that your spirit will uh, move us, that it will clarify things for us, that uh, please be with me as I speak, that it is clearly and understandable and, um, and certainly glorifying to you. Dear Lord, thank you for this time that we can gather. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so Paul again in 2 Corinthians has this dilemma. He's being attacked by these false apostles who are bringing in a, uh, a demon doctrine, just to say it as clear as it can be, and by attacking Paul and his integrity and his uh, motives and uh, everything, he, they're trying to get their foot in the door. And one of their uh, um, accusations of Paul was that he commended himself too much, that he spoke with too much authority. Um, and so, uh, in his defense, Paul has to defend himself. But in defending yourself, it's kind of a sticky proposition. He has to sound not very boastful, but, he's, but he has to defend who he is, not for his own sake, but for the sake of the church at Corinth. Okay, he's not defending, he's not worried about his reputation, other than what that reputation means to the church at Corinth. So he... He's not worried about what they say about him, but he needs to defend himself um, uh, in a manner that not only glorifies God, but also convinces the Corinthians who he is, that he is who he says he is. His motives are true. His heart is true. Um, he has no hidden sin. That's one of the other things they, uh, they were accusing him of, that all these persecutions on him were because he had some kind of hidden sin that was not... Um, uh, that God was chastising him for. Um, so the way he does that in verses 1 through 8, we just kind of to uh, recap, um, he gives a reason for his, 
his courage, for his outspoken um, uh, proclamation of the gospel with his authority. He gives a reason. The reason is this, that he would rather be at home with the Lord uh, than here in this earthly body. He knows that, that the worst thing that could happen to him would be the best thing. We talked about that um, a couple weeks ago, but he understood that death would just bring him into the presence of God for which he would live eternally. Uh, and then in verse 9, he said, since God has, has saved him and placed him in this ministry, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, he aims his ambition, his, his um, earnest endeavor, he, he puts his utmost into pleasing God. That is his whole ambition is to please God. Not to please men, not to build up some kind of worldly reputation, uh, not for any type of uh, um, riches he can get here on earth, but to please God. And that was his ultimate goal in life, his ultimate ambition in life. And in verse 10, he gave us a motivation for um, why, he, uh, why he does what he does. And that is that he knew that he will have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We talked about this last week. Um, and we talked about the fact that this judgment seat of Christ, that all believers will still appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that word appear means that, that we will be, uh, it'll, everything will be made manifest. Everything will show all your, all your deeds that you've done in the flesh, all your motives for why you did that, every word you say will be made manifest. It will be laid bare before Christ. That, all of us will face that uh, judgment. Uh, and so Paul's ultimate goal was not s storing up treasure here on earth, but storing up those treasures in heaven. That is why he spoke like he did. So, so Paul's not afraid of dying. Matter of fact, he longed for it, as, as he has said in verses 1 through 8. God gave him this ministry, and in this ministry, his main goal, his ultimate ambition is to please God, and God only, not man. And he knew he would face judgment and be held accountable for every deed he made in the flesh. So Paul, that's Paul's idea. And, and let's just kind of remember Paul. Who was he before God saved him? You know, he was a, a blasphemer. He was persecuting. He was killing Christians. And then, boom. Okay, it was a kind of an all of a sudden. It was a supernatural work. Now, it's a supernatural work in everybody. But in Paul, it was an all of a sudden supernatural work that, that he, he tells us about. And in that supernatural work, then he, God gives him this ministry, tells him how much he's going to have to suffer uh, for the sake of the name of Christ. So Paul knew all this, but Paul now, Paul's still human like we are. Ooh. Paul is still human, and by that I mean that in this situation now in Corinth, if we go back to the context, he, he doesn't know the ultimate outcome of it. Okay? He's not like God who's omniscient. He is human. He doesn't know what's going to come of those in Corinth. Therefore, you know, and this is the church that he planted. Uh, he spent 18 months there. He poured his heart to it. He's already written them a, a letter, the, the first Corinthian letter. Uh, and uh, so during this attack by the false apostles, he needs to convince... The church at Corinth, um, number one, that his motives were sincere, that he was who he said he was. He didn't have some kind of ultimate agenda in, 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 in uh, 
his starting this church at Corinth, he, in his, his life was an open book that he didn't have some kind of unseen sin or uh, hidden sin that, uh, that God was chastising him for through all these persecutions. Uh, and the thing he appeals to the most, and first of all, and he has done several times, is his own conscience. His own conscience knows that his motives are pure and that, his, uh, that he does not have the secret sin that he's being accused of. Uh, so he, he appeals to his conscience. And then so we get to our, our verse today, verse 11, uh, where he wants the Corinthians now to know, as God knows him, that's what he wants the Corinthians. They, he wants the Corinthians to view him the same way God views him, because God knows his heart, God knows his motives. So that's what he says here in verse 11. So he starts out by saying, Therefore, uh, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We persuade others. Paul knew, again, from the verse prior to that, that even the redeemed, even those who are in Christ, would face judgment. And sometimes we take that, that phrase, the fear of the Lord, and we probably use it here in this church more than most churches do. Um, because we understand the attributes of God. Uh, uh, and, uh, and that word is translated in the King James as the terror of the Lord. Terror. So Paul knew the fear of the Lord well. He knew we would, as believers would face judgment, not for our sin, because that was taken care of by, by Christ on the cross, but we will face judgment for everything we do as believers in the body uh, in, the, in the flesh and all the motives that are behind them. Um, but the fear of the Lord, you know, we consider it, we can kind of tone that down a little bit and say, well, the fear of the Lord means just we have this reverence for him, we have this awe for him, you know, that's who he is. But we got to remember the attributes of God. He's a jealous God. He's a just God. Uh, he's wrathful against those that do not accept him. So we understand that that's, that's more than just reverence and awe. It's, it's who God is. And so to the unregenerate, to those that, that do not love God, that is a terror. Because what's going to happen at judgment on the last day, the great throne judgment? You know, he's going to open the books. He goes, he's going to proclaim judgment on them. And he's going to administer that sentence right then. And they'll burn forever in the, in the lake of fire. So Paul understood that well, and therefore, because of that, he wanted to persuade others. And he didn't persuade others just like, uh, like saying something like, hey, watch out for the fear of the Lord. You know, consider that. And then just kind of go away and just, you know, not really care the outcome of that. He, you know, no. Uh, he would say something more like, you know, I know I've been delivered from this terror of the Lord. And I want you as well. And so I'm going to persuade you. I'm going to talk to you about it. I'm going to bring that up. And so the heart of every minister, every believer, really is to persuade. And it's not just like throwing it out there and say, okay, this is what's going to happen to you. With no feelings, no desire, no, no understanding of what that really means for eternity. Um, it's... It's, it's more than that. And so at the heart of, like I said, every believer should be that. Now, we in this church understand, when you talk about persuading people, we in this church understand that 
God alone saves that uh, we cannot really talk anybody into it in and of our own power, right? We don't have that kind of power. It is God alone that saves. And that's one of the, uh, one of the arguments against uh, the sovereignty of God and salvation is that they say, well, those people that believe that, which would be these people here, um, those people who believe that, you know, they're just going to sit back because God's got it. He's going to save who he wants, when he wants, and they don't have any control over it. And that is, that is the argument that is placed against God's sovereignty and salvation. When, and the answer to why do we believe God saves and it's not man's free will that saves him, is this. The Bible teaches God alone saves. We are commanded to persuade men. They cannot be saved without hearing the gospel. And that is what we are commanded to do. So we have, you know, and we have, so we, we, and we don't know who it is out there that God has got as an elect. So we persuade, we talk, we preach the gospel, we tell them about Jesus. Uh, we all have friends and families that we, that if you really considered the ultimate outcome, if we didn't tell them, we certainly would be more passionate about telling them about Christ. Um, and so Paul did that. Paul did that. And um, a couple of verses you speak to that um, are on your hand out there. 2 Corinthians 5.20, he says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal, his appeal, God's appeal, through us. So when we're speaking to others of Christ, it is really God's appeal to them through us. We are the instrument that God uses. We are the means by which God will save someone. It says, we implore you, so on behalf of Christ, to be reconciled to God. So he is, he, he is doing it with feeling. He's not just throwing that fact out there. He's doing it from a heart that desires salvation for others. And then in Acts 18.4, which is... is the, uh, where he founded the church at Corinth, okay? This is what he did when he came into the town. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. In Acts 18, 13, he says, saying, and, and this is what the others were saying of Paul. Others were saying of Paul when they, were, uh, when they brought him up to, um, uh, for charges, trying to get him thrown up, when they rioted against him, they were saying this about him. This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. So he was persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Well, I mean, all that's true, but that's what Paul was doing. He was persuading people to do that. And then Paul was saying in his final letter to Timothy, this is kind of how you do it. This is how you do it. And the Lord's servant, that would be all of us, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses, I like that, come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do as well. So God may perhaps grant them repentance, but the way you do that is not... Again, by shoving it down their throat, but with gentleness, kindness, persuasive attitude. 
So that's what Paul did. Paul did because he knows the fear of the Lord. He's persuading others. And then he gives his defense beginning in the second half of that verse here. But what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. So Paul's defense is this. What he is is known to God. He, when he says we, he's talking about he and the apostles that were teaching. Uh, what he is known to God, God's omniscient. God knows his heart. God knows his motives, right? And um, uh, he knew, uh, God knows who Paul was. So was Paul just a peddler of God's word like he accuses the false apostles or some kind of charlatan or a fake? Uh, well, no, I think we know that quite well. He said uh, God knew that, that Paul was, was discharging his ministry with um, his, sincere heart, his sincere heart. He had no ulterior motives. He had no secret sin that he was hiding from them for which God was chastising him for. But he's saying, God knows that about me. I want you to know that about me as well. I want your conscience to be aware of who I am. The interesting thing also in that verse is, if you recall in verse 10 when we talked about the word appear, meaning to be made manifest, to lay bare everything in front of God on that judgment seat, that same word, phanero, is what is translated known on the second half of verse 11. So he says, but what we are is known to God. It's already been made manifest. It's already been laid bare. God knows who who we, the apostles, myself, are. And I hope it is also made manifest to you, be made known to you, be, be laid bare in front of you, to you understand that my motives are sincere and I'm not who I'm being accused of doing. And in verse 12, he, he, he continues on, or just a couple of things to speak to that. I think in 2 Corinthians, uh, earlier in the verse, he talked about earlier in the chapter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12 through 14, he told the Corinthians, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. So his behavior in the world, simple, godly sincerity, and, it's our, and his conscience knows that. He, he is not... He is told, I'm not a, you know, my conscience, I'm not aware of anything that my conscience is accusing me of. But even at that, I'm not acquitted because it's God who judges all. So, but he's telling the church at Corinth that that's the way he acted. And then to continue on in that verse, he says, For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. In other words, we're not saying anything different than what I wrote to you before and what you understood. You know, we're not changing our gospel we're not changing our message to fit my life, you know, and to make me popular or anything like that. I, no, no, no. I, we, we're not changing that. And I said, I hope you will fully understand, just as you partially understood us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. So on the day Christ returns, he wants to be with them. He wants them to be boasting of him. He, they want, he wants them to to understand that he, his heart is good and, and he, is, um, he is speaking the truth in God just like he will speak of them at the day of salvation. So that's his, that's his prayer for them. Uh, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, 
again, speaking of himself, kind of in his defense, for we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. Again, that's kind of what he, he observed the false apostles to be peddlers because they had ulterior motives. But as men of sincerity, commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak. So Paul was well aware that every word he spoke, as we should be well aware every word we speak, is in the sight of God and not just to men. And in chapter 4, he again continues, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. He says, we don't do that. It says, we refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. His word has not changed. What he had told them before, still the same. His doctrine's the same. He doesn't change it. Every place, every, every church he goes to, he teaches the same thing, the same doctrine. Um, he says, by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience, again, in the sight of God. So he's, he's, wanting, to, he's wanting their conscience to understand uh, what his conscience sees and what God sees in him also. So he wants to see who he is, what his motives are, what he is teaching is truly from God. So then in verse 12, he says... Uh, this is the reason for why he is making this appeal to the Corinthians. Um, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but we're giving you cause to boast about us. Okay, so we're doing this for you so that you can understand us, boast of us, commend us, understand what we're teaching, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. So again, he's, he's, he's speaking to those false apostles who, who their appearance may have been significantly better than Paul's. They may have been well-dressed from Jerusalem. They were of the Pharisee party, the circumcision party. <clears throat> they were hoping that the Corinthian church, the false apostles were hoping that the Corinthian church would be attracted to them and their doctrine, partially because of their appearance, partially because of maybe their eloquence in speaking. Uh, you know, everything that doesn't matter, their appearance, their, how they speak, but would be attracted to Paul for his sincerity and the truth of the Word of God. Paul was probably, again, this, he'd been persecuted and beat up so many times. He poor. He didn't own anything. You know, he was not the appearance um, uh, that that we as humans tend to go for. Uh, so we do not look at the appearance. And we'll talk later. If someone steps up here in an Armani suit, starts talking to you about things that don't sound quite right, need to beware. Need to beware. So Paul is saying that he he is uh, he's doing this not again for he's not defending himself for his own self-esteem. Uh, for his own ego, for his own reputation, but for the Corinthians to understand who he is and not be led astray by the false apostles. And he, Second uh, Corinthians ten eight, I think I have this. It says he, he reiterates this: for even if I boast, and this is this is Paul's desire for the church at Corinth. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, and you got to remember, Paul had the authority from God. All right. So even if I boast a little too much which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you. So the Lord gives Paul this authority 
and this word for building up the church at Corinth and all other churches. Um, in uh, chapter 10, he says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, speaking again of those false teachers, false apostles at the church, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. So the false apostles, as did many of the scribes and Pharisees at the time, they would compare themselves with this teacher, that teacher, okay? They were comparing themselves with other men and what they said, okay? Uh, Paul did not do it. He, all, all he cared about was being commended by God. Um, and he says that then in, uh, at, in the next verse, it's written, to, therefore, excuse me, uh, chapter 10, verse 18, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So then, in, uh, so you see, the Corinthians, they kind of looked at these false apostles. They may have been, uh, like I said, eloquent in speech and, and sounded reasonable. And we talked about their doctrine uh, was one of kind of dragging in the Old Testament um, uh, to the church and to the Jews that were uh, in the church and started. That sounded pretty good to them because they didn't, you know, Paul was saying, you know, all that stuff that you're doing to be saved is rubbish more or less. It's, 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 it's not the truth. But by bringing in the law like these did <clears throat> and sounding um, uh, and presenting it in a way that was eloquent, they would attract, you know, to our human nature, people that would follow them. But then Paul calls them out um, in chapter 11, 12 through 15. He says this, and what I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So even at the church at Corinth, as in all churches, there will be false teachers and false apostles. And identifying them, we have spoken of that on several occasions, it will be the doctrine that they teach. If they're teaching something that is consistent with the scriptures, <clears throat> they're not false apostles. But if they wander in the myths or other things or bring in their own Ideas, they're false teachers, false, uh, false teachers, false apostles in that case. So our fallen nature, though, however, because of the way we are, will tend to be attracted to those of nice appearance, eloquent speech, things like that. But we need to understand it's what they're saying and what's in their heart and not their appearance. So... I was going to talk about Shallow Hal, but I don't know if y'all remember that movie. Maybe not. You know, I remember that. Anyway, he, all he could see was the outward appearance, okay? And that's all he cared about was if someone was pretty or not, or not pretty. And so I can't remember who he went to, but someone then changed his mind that when he would look at a person now, he would see their heart. And if their heart was good, now they looked pretty to him. They could see with his eyes they were pretty. And so that's kind of what 
what Paul is saying here. You don't look at the appearance, you know. You look at their heart, what they're teaching. And then he goes on again in his defense in chapter, I mean, in, in uh, verse 13, kind of an unusual verse. He says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. So what's he talking about here? Is he, I mean, you could look at this and say maybe Paul was kind of schizophrenic. You know, he would be beside himself. Beside himself, that word translates really out of the mind. Um, so is Paul saying he's out of his mind sometimes? Um, well, <clears throat> no, but the false apostles would, that would be one of their claims against him, that sometimes he was um, either too enthusiastic, too authoritative. Um, he was uh, speaking things they didn't understand, possibly, uh, because of his, his dogma and his, and his passion for the word of God. Um, they use the same word that's translated here beside ourselves in Mark, I think I wrote down, yeah, Mark 3.21. His family, Jesus' family, used that same word to describe him, that he was out of his mind. That's what they thought he was. Now, was Jesus out of his mind? Was, was he speaking things maybe they didn't understand or were foreign to him and, and maybe they recollected him as being out of his mind? Probably. They thought John the Baptist was out of his mind and possessed by a demon. They called Christ, like I said, out of his mind. They said he was possessed by a demon. So what's Paul, what's Paul saying here in his defense? And would probably, how do, how do we read this? He wasn't, he's not out of his mind. Um, but in their opinion, some of the church, some of the members of the church at Corinth and maybe these false apostles would accuse him of being out of his mind, over the top, just, just too, uh, too passionate, too ecstatic, too dogmatic, uh, something that didn't make sense. So if in their opinion, he seemed so zealous that he seemed out of his mind, he wanted the church at Corinth in this to know that, <clears throat> that if he was zealous, this was only because he's speaking the word of God and he's only glorifying God in it. If on the one hand, the, those at Corinth could see his zealous nature and what it was truly representing, glorifying God, then they would not think he was out of his mind. They would think he was in his right mind and sober, and they would be edified because of that. So the same message that Paul preaches to one person would seem crazy and absurd and out of his mind, but to others, understanding Paul's heart and what he is saying is the truth of God and led by the Spirit would understand what he is saying and saying he's in his right mind and be edified by it. So if he's out of it, so Paul didn't much care <clears throat> about the opinions of men. He was putting that out there, and he was, he was preaching like he preached. Um, and he understood that some would think he was crazy, reject what he said for sure, um, and others would be edified by it. Just like the gospel message. We've talked about that on, on many occasions. The same message that is spoken here Someone over there may understand it perfectly and be cut to the heart. This person over here might think it's crazy. Paul was accused of being crazy. Um, as you recall, when he was uh, 
<clears throat> being in the Roman court when he was um, before King Agrippa and Festus, he was accused of the same thing. I think I wrote it down here in Acts 26, and it kind of illustrates his point. Uh, in Acts 26, starting in chapter 24, and right before this verse here, the previous verse I should have wrote on here was basically said that the Lord Jesus died for your sin and was resurrected. He was presenting the gospel in front of King Agrippa, uh, Festus, the governor. And then it starts in verse 24. And he was saying these things in his defense. He, being Paul, was saying these things in his defense. And Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. So to Festus, what he was saying was, he was out of the mind. He was crazy. It didn't make sense. Okay. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking the truth in rational words. So he was speaking the truth, but to Festus, and he was out of his mind. So that's what Paul is saying there in verse 13. Now we come to uh, <clears throat> verse 14. Um, Paul says this, For the love of Christ controls us. Let's just stop there. The love of Christ. Let's talk about the love of Christ. Now, now as a believer, Paul, as all of us, have a love for Christ. Don't we? I mean, in, in, I think you're running here, and he said in his previous letter in chapter 16, if anyone has no love for the Lord, Lord let him be accursed. But we have that love for him because he first loved us. All right? And that's written down there too, First John 4, 19. So in the context here, the love of Christ, he kind of mean both, but really he's speaking about Christ's love for him. Because of Christ's love for him and each and every believer, uh, Paul understood that that love that Christ had for him, <coughs> that as he spoke in Romans, I think, or 835 and following, that nothing can separate us from that love. And because of that love that Christ has for each and every one of his believers, it controls him. It constraineth him in the King James. It constrains him because he understands that, that, uh, that Christ owns him, that he uh, has authority over him, that he bought him, that he is his. And therefore, that love that Christ has for him controls him, controls him. There's a quote, uh, and that's what gives him, uh, that's one of the other motivations. We talked about the motivation for he's going to have to face judgment, as we all will. But the love of Christ also is a strong motivation. And a quote from John Gill, I think I wrote it down there at the bottom, but it may have kind of messed up on the copy. It says, he said this, nothing more effectively keeps ministers or other believers in the work and service of our Lord or more strongly obliges and constrains them to cheerful discharge of their duty to him. Cheerful discharge. You're doing it because Christ loves you. You want to do it, right? Then his love displayed in his covenant engagements, certainly the covenants and the promises, in his assumption of human nature and particularly in his dying for them. The love of Christ demonstrated in his sacrificing himself for us. And so that brings us to 
uh, the next part of the verse, <clears throat> which goes along. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. In other words, we have, we have we've, uh, thought about it, rationalized it, and this is what we understand to be, that one has died for all. And let's just stop there. One has died for all. Who is the one? Christ, right? That's pretty much understood here. Uh, one as opposed to all the other people, all others in the world. Um, and he died for, and that word is probably best translated in the place of, died for all. Uh, and so what was the, the nature of his death? The nature of his death was not just like a martyr's death, you know, that he, uh, for a cause, and it wasn't, and he didn't die, live and die just to be an example to us here on earth, although he was, okay? Um, or as, as you remember Caiaphas saying, it's good that one man died for the whole nation, and the whole nation, you know, uh, be swept away. You know, in other words, he wasn't doing it um, <clears throat> so that the, uh, the Jews at that time could be, uh, so Rome would not um, uh, conquer them or come down hard on them. No, he was died, he died as a substitute, okay, in place of. That is the key to that, having all the sins of all that would ever believe placed on him as a substitute. It, that's, this is kind of the heart of the Christian uh, theology and gospel is that <clears throat> he was our substitute. He died the death we should have died. Uh, because of our sin. He was the sacrifice. He was the propitiation. Remember the Old Testament, they had many sacrifices for sins that were only temporary and, and could not, uh, <clears throat> did not uh, ever take away sins as well, the blood of bulls and goats. He speaks in Hebrews, but he was a sacrifice. He was the propitiation. He ransomed those who are his, and he made atonement. He made atonement. He appeased God for us. He died in our place. And the Old Testament prophesied that that's what the Messiah would be, that he would be a substitute, that he would be someone uh, that takes the place of someone else. And the best place to read that is in Isaiah 53. And I think I wrote, <clears throat> I put that on there. Uh, let me just read an excerpt. We won't read the whole thing. Uh, Isaiah 53 uh, starting in verse 4, it says, Surely he, speaking of the Messiah, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. <clears throat> and with his wounds we are healed. And like sheep have all gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So he was the substitute for what we should have gotten from God. He was a substitute. So, so in God's wisdom, he sends his only son, take on flesh. He lives a perfect, sinless life uh, that we could not um, and he took all of our sins upon himself, upon his death, all of our sins, all of the sins of those who would ever believe, 
on himself for which God was pleased to crush him and turn his back on him. And in, by so doing, he makes atonement. He makes propitiation. He appeases the wrath of God upon us. So our sins are all placed on him. They're all paid for because he was our substitute. So not only was he our substitute to take our sins away, but then he gave his righteousness to us. It's called the great exchange. The righteousness, the perfect life he lived, the righteousness he had in God, he transferred to us. So we are, he was the, the great substitute, the great transfer. I think it's called by various other things. But it's the, it's the really bedrock of our Christian theology. And so later on in, in chapter 5, verse 21, he, he says, He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is the idea there. That is the idea that one died for all. Now, who is the all? That's the other question here. Who is the all? You know, the word all is always qualified by its context, what it's talking about. You know, I could say, you know, say I had, I know I have 10 pennies over here, and I could say something, well, I lost them all. And, and you know, you could say, all what? I mean, all the pennies in the world? Uh, no, it's qualified because I just got these pennies in my pocket. Those are all that I lost over there. But all doesn't always mean all or everyone in the whole world. And so that's, that's what the context here tells us. And I'm going to briefly do that because we're out of time. And we may pick up more on this elsewhere. But the verse um, uh, says here, I put three different translations here for you so we can understand. He says, for the in the ESV, which you read, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Okay? The King James says, uh, for the love of Christ constraineth us because this we judge, that if one died for all, then all, then we're all dead. All right? So, so the, the question says, who is the all? Okay, well, you can certainly say that all men are dead in their sin before they come to Christ. And that would be a true statement. But if Christ died for all men that are dead in their sin, that means everyone is saved. That's universalism. We know that's not the case. Uh, Christ speaks too much of, of hell and, and stuff like that. So who is the all? The all, then, really the New Living Translation really says it the best, I think. It says, either way, Christ's love controls us since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe we have died to our old self. So by saying that one has died for all, therefore all have died, he's basically saying Christ had died for all who died in him. And by them dying, he's speaking of them dying to their old self. He took away their sins. Uh, he they then died to their own sinful nature. So now, as Christ was resurrected from the dead, we are also to live to God. And I've really got more to say about that, but I'll have to do it next time because Romans, 1, uh, Romans 6, 1 through 11 really kind of solidifies that. And, uh, but since we're out of time, we'll, we'll talk about that next time. So, so let's pray, and then we'll fellowship for a little bit and then worship some more. Father, we uh, thank you again so much for your word that, uh, that shows us who you are, what you have done, and who we are, and what you have done for us. 
We praise you, Lord, that you have died for, uh, for those that you have, uh, that have died to you, Lord, that have, that have died to their own self. And those are, uh, those I pray are, are everyone that is here, but if not, I ask the Lord that uh, you will make that manifest to them, that you will uh, regenerate them and, uh, and guide them and, and to the new self and not the old self, dear Lord. Again, we thank you for this time. Uh, be with us as we continue our worship in song and praise. In your son's name, amen.